The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Our sermon text this morning is 2 Samuel 10. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 10. If you don't have a Bible, the black-bound pew Bible in front of you, you'll find 2 Samuel 10 on page 261. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of beth and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehov and the men of Tov and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Halam, with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak the commander of their army so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Scripture routinely gives us an understanding of the broader world. And as we pay close attention, particularly attention to the text in its context, 
we can see a great many things that it speaks to any and every culture, including ours. Even some 2,000, maybe even 3,000 years removed from its original writing, still it speaks to our current cultural moment. And that is because, one, God's Word is enduring. And two, people have not changed at all. They don't like change. They don't want to change. And we haven't changed. Man's nature does not change. People have been the same since the fall of Adam. I know I'm not the only one who has turned on the news or read some article and thought to myself, what is wrong with people? Right? That seems to be the growing sentiment every time you read anything on either the internet or watch the news of any kind. You walk away with that impression. What in the world is wrong with people? It doesn't seem that common sense really that common, does it? There's a passage in the Psalms that asks the same question. Essentially asking the question, what is wrong with people? It answers it this way. Psalm 2, 1-3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That's the question. Why is this happening? What is wrong with people? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This right here, this passage, explains everything that you see on the news. It explains everything that you see in your culture. What is happening in our culture is a human desire expressed in many different ways to reject the God that made us. That's at the root of it all. Is a desire to reject the God that made us. That desire is captured in that phrase right there in the passage, let us burst their bonds apart. People reject God because, quite simply, they do not want to be ruled by Him. Nor by His King. That passage is a perfect framework to understand what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 10. It's a perfect framework to help us understand exactly what is taking place. There are two main sections in this passage where we see the two sides of God's King. And this will help us understand how this passage points to Jesus. If you're visiting with us, maybe this is your first time, to hear us preach through the Bible. We've been going through First and Second Samuel for some time now. And in the summers we go through Psalms. And in every passage that we're going to cover in the Old Testament, essentially we're going to work our way down to the same basic components, which is all of the passages of Scripture, if rightly understood, are going to point us 
squarely to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is my job right now, is to work through this text and demonstrate for you how this actually leads us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do that by looking at the two sides of God's king here in David. First, we see the kind king. David, the kind king. Look at verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to, to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beards of each and cut their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. The king of the Ammonites is a man named Nahash, or was a man named Nahash. His name means serpent. And if you remember, if you dig all the way back in your memory some many, many, many months ago, when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash, the father of Hanun, was the first king that Saul faced when he was named king. He went and led the Israelites into battle against Nahash in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and he defeated him resoundingly. And since then, he has apparently, though we didn't really get much of a word, one, as far as an update, he has apparently had this agreement with Israel that he would serve Israel, and in return, he would get to keep his life and the life of the Ammonites. So the Ammonites at some point had been a lifelong, as it were, servant of Israel. So not only had Nahash been loyal to Saul, but what's really important to understand is that when Saul died, he transferred his loyalty to David. So that ordinarily would be a time where there's an upheaval in a kingdom, and perhaps someone who is paying service to the nation of Israel might use that as an opportunity to get out from under that yoke and maybe rebel, as it were. But he didn't. He loyally served David. And now that Hanun is dead... David essentially wants to return the favor. David is dealing loyally with Hanun, even though this could be an opportunity where he comes in and says, hey, we had an agreement with your father, but I don't have an agreement with you. So bye-bye, Ammonites. But that's not what he does. He decides to deal loyally with him. But you understand that this idea of David coming in to deal loyally with this new king is the connecting theme between this chapter and the previous chapter that Jeremy preached so well last week, precisely because of the kindness that David is demonstrating toward this, what would be a foreign adversary. Remember last chapter, in chapter 9, if you look back there, David asks in verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then look at verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
The word that's translated there in those two verses, and then another time also in chapter 9, that's translated kindness, is the same word that's translated loyally here in chapter 10. It's a word that's used many times in the Old Testament. You might as well hear it because it is repeated in the, in the Old Testament thousands of times probably. The word is chesed. You've got to say it like there's something in the back of your throat. Chesed. Chesed. You can do it. Come on. Chesed. There you go. Chesed. You don't, don't say chesed. It's not chesed. It's chesed. All right? You've got to get it in there. Pretend like you really know something. All right? You know, it's one of those things you can throw out there with your friends to really impress them. Um, party trick, you know? You just say chesed. It's right there. All right? So what it means is it's translated a, a billion different ways. Loving kindness is one way you'll see it translated. Faithfulness, goodness, graciousness, and often in the ESV, if you've got it there, steadfast love. You'll see it translated that way a lot of times. Essentially, the meaning of the word is a kind of ongoing love and favor towards somebody based on a covenant of some sort. I remember my Hebrew professor used to say, just do your best on the test. There's going to be lots of chesed in the grading. And we always love to hear that word. There wasn't enough chesed sometimes, but you get the idea. It, it was, it's, a, it's a general favor, a loving kindness demonstrated to you because of a covenant that you have with the other person. So here's what's going on in chapters 9 and 10. In 9... David is dealing with chesed, with loving kindness, based on the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And he's treating the people inside of his kingdom with that same kind of mercy, loyal love, loving kindness that he demonstrated toward his father. He made a promise to Jonathan, and his aim is to see that through with Jonathan's son. I'm going to deal loyally with Jonathan's son because of the covenant that I had with his father. Now in chapter 10, he's basically underscoring the fact that God's kingdom as a whole is ruled by God's king through a policy of steadfast love. God's kingdom is ruled by God's king through a policy of steadfast love. So the only difference between chapter 9 and chapter 10 is chapter 9 is underscoring David's domestic policy, while chapter 10 is underscoring his foreign policy. But you understand that the policy is the same whether he's dealing with people inside the borders of Israel or dealing with people outside the borders of Israel. The, the default position of God's king is to deal with steadfast love with those he encounters. Now, when that's falling on your ears, it's probably not as shocking as it should be. No one does this. You, you, let's go to the annals of Babylonian history. And let's see the king whose default position toward people who are foreign or domestic as one of steadfast love. Rome, Emperor Nero, Trajan, some of the worst men in human history. Germany in the 1930s and 40s, foreign policy, one of steadfast love. 
not hardly. You see, that's repeated throughout the ages where a dominant king like David would not be one whose foreign policy position is one of steadfast love. Barely their domestic policy, much less their foreign policy. So this morning we're looking at his foreign policy playing itself out as one of steadfast love, as the representative of God, the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You've heard this phrase repeated over and over. Psalm 103, 8 is where that particular instance comes from. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You have to understand, David is the representative of God. That's what it means to be king over God's kingdom, is that he is the representative of God. So his character should be representative of God's character. So if God is one who is slow to anger and merciful and gracious and abounding in chesed, that steadfast love, then how is it that David is to interact with people that are inside the borders of Israel and outside the borders of Israel? Also with that same kind of loyal love. David is abounding in steadfast love both to his fellow countrymen and to people who turn out to be total foreigners. So as an act of loving kindness, David sends his emissaries to console Hanun, who is the son of Nachash, and to wish him well during this grieving process, bringing you know, bouquets and funeral arrangements and all kinds of other things. But David's act of kindness is initially met with suspicion by the ad- adversaries of David and the advisors of Hanun. So at their advice... He takes these ambassadors who are coming dressed in Israel's royal garb, their robes. He takes these ambassadors and he cuts off the lower half of their garments. Don't need to explain to you how that works or what state that leaves them in. Needless to say, it is completely embarrassing. But then, in addition to that, he also cuts off half their beard. This would be a, not only is the cutting off of the garment, but also the cutting off of the beard is a direct violation of the Mosaic law. So it basically leaves them very obviously standing out in the open as violators of God's covenant or apparent violators of God's covenant. It's also unclear as to whether he cut off half their beard this way or he cut off half their beard this way. You can imagine how embarrassing this one would be. Very obviously, not only have these men been dominated and been captured by an adversary, but they have also been apparent violators of the Mosaic law. So it leaves them in a state, very complex state in Jewish society. They would be pointed out, ridiculed, ostracized. They are embarrassed from top to bottom. So David, when he meets them and leaves them in Jericho and tells them to stay there until their beards have grown, that's not, he's not being mean to them. He's being kind to them. He's covering their shame. He's essentially telling them, you know, stay out here on mission until your beards grow back so no one will know. In other words, this is David's way of saying to these emissaries, hey, we'll, we'll keep this just between us, all right? I won't tell anybody. I'll tell your family. You're still out serving me. You're doing something on my behalf, and we won't talk about it ever again until your beards grow back, and nobody will know anything has happened. It's sparing them of embarrassment. But you understand what this what position this actually puts the, the, the Ammonites in. They are people that have spurned 
the kindness, the loyal love, the chesed of God's king, of God himself as God's representative. They have spurned his kindness by being fools. So now, the Ammonites are going to get a very different response from God's king. No more is the kindness part going to be shown as, as it were, the gloves are coming off. Okay, so look at verse 6. Now we're going to see the conquering king. So we saw the kind king, now we're going to see the conquering king. Look at verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehov and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov with 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehov and the men of Tov and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. So the Ammonites essentially know they've messed up. And Ammon is a small territory, and so they know they have to go hire some Syrian mercenaries. And so that's exactly what they do. Now, here's what normally happens when you read the Old Testament. You come to all these names of all these cities you've never seen or don't know where they're located, and you see all these men and all these kings and all these names and all those kinds of things, and you get overwhelmed because we're unfamiliar with the geography. But let's just see where some of these places are located. I've got a map for you behind me. I know Shannon is going to be really excited because she loves when I display the maps. All right. She loves the geography. So the map behind me, I know some of it, maybe from a distance, you might not be able to see very well, but the orange up top in the top, all the way up at the very top, all the way down to about three quarters, three quarters of the way down is Aram or Syria. Aram, Syria, same place. All right. So that's Syria. And then Amon is this tiny little purple blob down here at the bottom. You see that? All right. So we kind of get our bearings. Leave that map up, if you will, just for a minute. But the point is that the, the big area is Aram. They've got far more people. Far bigger uh, area is covered there. And Ammon is a small, little, tiny uh, area. Uh, certainly not a threat to Israel. So they've bit off more than they can chew. Let's just say it that way, right? So here is the, the battle coming to the city of Rabbah, which if you look down at the bottom of the screen, you're probably not going to be able to see this from the back, but if you look down at the bottom left-hand corner of Ammon, that little purple blob out there on the far western frontier of Ammon is the city at question, where Israel comes to battle the town or the, the people of Ammon, the Ammonites. So what the author tells us in all of this is that they went to get these Syrian mercenaries in the, in the nation of Aram to bring them down to battle. And it tells us that they came up from the, the people from Tov and Makkah, which are various cities all throughout Aram, throughout Syria. They came and they were by themselves in the open country, which basically means that the people of Israel have come up to the town of Rabbah and the Syrians have come around the backside of them. So if you look back at all of the people that they went and recruited, hired, the mercenaries from Syria, look at what you've got. 20, in verse 6, 
20,000 foot soldiers. The king of Makkah brought another 1,000. The men of Tob, another 12,000. There's a ton of people essentially coming from the nation of Syria, and they're coming around to the backside of Israel. So Israel has marched up to the city of Rabbah, where Ammon has met them at the gates, and they're ready to do battle, and they look behind them, and all of a sudden there is a legion of soldiers coming from Syria to their back. That is what you call being surrounded. The deck, in other words, is stacked against them because, well, they've really backed themselves into a corner now. We've committed to this battle. But this is where the story comes to its point in the, through the mouth of Joab here. So let's look at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in, char- in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. Now, just pause right there. You notice what he's just done? He has taken the much harder battle of fighting the Syrians at his back and left his brother, his second in command, to fight the much less superior Ammon in front. So he's taken the harder battle, first of all. But then look at verse 11. And he said... If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Now, Joab is a bit of a paradox. He's a hard guy to figure out in the text. He's going to do some crazy things and be one of the more vile people you'll read in Scripture, and we'll get to that eventually in our study of 2 Samuel. But he's a bit of a paradox because on, on one hand, he is ruthless, and he seems a lot of times to look out for himself, even if that means defying David's orders sometimes. And remember, this is one of David's nephews, so his own family member, and he's, he's a little bit sketchy. But then on the other hand, in this passage... He seems to be a theologian, and he puts everything in very sharp focus. You might say there are no atheists in foxholes, and maybe that's what he's feeling at this moment. I don't know. But he puts everything in sharp focus. First of all, as I said, he's a brilliant commander. He takes the forces and and goes after the much stronger Syrians while he leaves his, his younger brother and his second in command to take the rest of the forces and go after the much easier Ammonite. So in in one sense, he's not only brave, he's courageous, he's leading from the front too, he's not taking the easier road, he's doing the harder work. So that's, that's one thing for sure. But second, he leads his younger brother to do what? what? What are they agreeing on here? What is this that we're looking at where he says, hey, if I get overwhelmed, come help me. If you get overwhelmed, I'll come help you. You know what you call that? Covenant. That's a promise that Joab 
he's making with Abishai, his little brother. And that Abishai is making in return to Joab. This is a, a covenant that if one of us gets overwhelmed, we will come and help the other. Do you know what doesn't happen with the forces that they are opposing? Just take a look at it. This is where we see the real point. Joab and Abishai are agreed to help each other should the battle overwhelm them, but it's very obvious that no such covenant exists between the Syrians and the Ammonites. In fact, once Ammon looks out and sees the much superior Syria running for the hills, the Ammonites decide to run for the hills too. Well, if they had the same kind of covenant that Joab and Abishai had between each other, maybe the Ammonites would go help the Syrians or vice versa. But that's not what happens at all. They each run for the hills to try to save their own necks. That's what plays out. The Syrians get overwhelmed. They flee. The Ammonites see the Syrians flee, and they turn and run. And at the end of the passage, it says very, very significantly, the very last part of the verse, of verse 21, says, the Syrians were afraid to save, that is, help the Ammonites anymore. It's the same word that Joab and Abishai exchange between each other. If you get overwhelmed, I'll come and help you. If I get overwhelmed, you come help me. But what happens at the very end, these two pagan nations say, I ain't coming to save your neck anymore. No covenant exists between them. By the end, not only are the Ammonite forces decimated, but the Syrian armies are also ruined. So much so that if you notice as the way it plays out at the very end, the kings who had served Hadadezer, the, the king of the Syrians, they decide that they're going to turn and make peace with Israel. Forget this. We're not going to battle against Israel. They even abandon their own king. And they turn and serve David instead. But what's the real difference between the Israelite leaders and the Ammonite leaders? Look at Job's statement after he and Abishai make an agreement with each other in verse 12. He says, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. So they know the deck is stacked against them. And he says, but this is the moment, Abishai, where we're going to trust. We're going to make a covenant between each other, that we're going to help each other, and then we're going to trust in this battle. This is, this is what we're going to trust. Look at the very end of it. May the Lord do what seems good to him. We're going to fight. We're going to go into this battle in which we're overwhelmed. We're surrounded in front and behind. But in the process, we are going to trust that the God who loves us, who has been faithful to His covenant with us, who has expressed His loyal love to us, His chesed to us time and time again, we are going to trust that He is going to continue to be good to us. And whatever he does to us here on the battlefield is what is good. Not only to him, but for us. Because he loves us. So the Israelite leaders are entrusting themselves to the covenant love of God, knowing that if he does what seems good to him, then it will be for their benefit. It may not look like it at the time, 
may not look like it in the moment as they're surrounded or maybe even they're losing in battle. But if he does what seems good to him, and if he is a God who is committed through his covenant to his people, then no matter what happens to me personally, I know that it is for my good and for his glory. You understand what they're saying? You understand what the real difference is substantively between Abishai and Joab and then the rest of the pagan forces that they're going up to fight against. And let's not sugarcoat things. Israel here is in a tight spot. They're surrounded by forces that are seeking to kill them. And they're the last line of defense, he says, between them and the cities back home. That's why he says, for the cities of our God we're going to fight. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's plain and simple. If we don't stop the Ammonites and the Syrians and they kill us here on the battlefield, you think they're going to stay out over here? You think they're not going to use this as an opportunity to get out from under the foot of David? You think they're not going to move into Israel and start attacking the city since the army is decimated? Of course they are. This is a tight spot. It's do or die. If we die, then probably Jerusalem does with us. But what you're looking at is Joab, who in spite of what the rest of the Bible shows him to be, which is a very ruthless man, has a moment of clarity here by giving us the precise problem presented in this text. The world spurns the kindness of God quite simply because they don't want to be ruled by Him. That is what has happened here with the Ammonites. They have seen these emissaries coming. And they have spurned the kindness of God's king because, quite simply, they do not want to be ruled by Israel at all. In this text, David has sent peaceful emissaries of his kingdom to impart the loving kindness of God, just like he did the last chapter with Mephibosheth. But he's imparted it this time to a pagan nation. And what, is, what happens when they get there? But they're met with scorn and they're met with suspicion. They're stripped half naked. Their beards are shorn one way or the other. And they're no doubt publicly mocked and ridiculed as they're sent out of town, ultimately rejected. But you have to understand there's a broader point here that the author is underscoring. They're not merely rejecting emissaries, just any old ambassador. They're rejecting the covenant love of God expressed through His King as a blessing to the world. They're rejecting God's rule entirely over them. I'm afraid, though, this lesson that's here in our text is a lesson that the broader world throughout the ages, refuses to learn. See, a thousand years after this event, God Himself will come to very similar people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for the great crime of healing the blind, curing the sick, casting out demons from the oppressed, For the crime of walking on water and feeding the 5,000, what does he receive in return 
for this ultimate expression of God's covenant love to the nations. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, He gave His back to those who strike, and His cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He hid not His face from disgrace and spitting. What did he get for this crime? Isaiah 53 verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was an embarrassment to his people, in other words. And John 19, 23 and 24 says they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. They stripped him naked. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what the scripture, the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. The, the problem we're seeing with the Ammonites, you understand, is not an Ammonite problem. The problem that we're seeing with the Ammonites is a human problem. And the problem is not David. It's not Israel. It's not, who are these emissaries? It's not, they're coming to spy out our city. The problem is God Himself. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers of the earth say, let's gather together and let's burst their bonds from among us. Let's throw off God's rule from over us. Why? Why would we as humans be like that toward God? Why would anyone foolishly refuse the kindness of God? Remember, this is how the apostles demonstrate the death of Jesus. This is the passage that they connect the death of Jesus to in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is His anointed? Jesus. Originally David, ultimately Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So according to the apostles, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain against the kindness of God coming to them in the person of Jesus? It wasn't because He walked on water. It wasn't because He, he healed the sick. It wasn't because He fed the 5,000. It was because He was God's anointed. And to submit to Him meant we've got to submit to someone who is ruling over us. An all-powerful, almighty authority who has charge over our lives. And I'm afraid that is a bridge too far for the world. 
Why would you spurn the loving kindness of God demonstrated to you? Because you don't want to be ruled. That seems. Kindness of God has come to us, ultimately and truly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, who took the wrath of God that I deserve so that He might secure for me forgiveness from God and by His resurrection, everlasting life. For which of those would you kill Him? It's not that. It's the rule that He seeks to have over my life. The reason the world rejects the kindness of God is the same reason the sinner sits in the pew and after the sermon gets up and goes home and ignores any conviction that ever sat on his heart. Because, quite honestly, it means that I've got to bow down and be subject to an authority beyond myself. And that is what I don't like. But it's not just the world. It's in God's people too. See, we will on the outside, all of us, say, God has a plan. Don't we? Well, that's like our favorite phrase. That's our only word of comfort to anyone who's sad. Is to say, hey, cheer up. God has a plan. It's the thing that we sprinkle on everything. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, that is the phrase that we use to describe it. What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, it means He has a plan. But out of one side of our mouth, we'll extol the greatness of God and His sovereign plan and the fact that He does have a plan. Until, of course, we see less money in our bank account. Get a financial report in our email. And we say, What is happening? Has God abandoned us? I heard. Don't worry. We panic. We think, what? Well, what's happening now? What happened to that whole God had a plan thing? Well, it was forgotten. As soon as we leave the doctor's office with a bad report, what happened to that whole God had a plan thing? Well, but now it actually negatively affects me. Now it means I'm surrounded by enemies in front and behind. Now it's different. When I'm in the midst of it, when I'm having to face the storm, then it's hard. But, but it does call into question, doesn't it, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And, and if you do, why then do you worry? Why then do you complain? Think about what complaint really is. I believe, one, God has a plan. He's sovereign. I believe, two, in the covenant love of God, that in Christ, He has set His covenant love on me, and it shall never depart. That's what Paul means in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I see He has a plan I see that His covenant love He has set on me and it will never depart because it has been set on me in Christ. Then for me to complain is for me to say, I don't like your rule and your authority over my life. Even when it's bad. 
especially when it's bad. See, it's easy for us in the church to be happy and excited when everything is great. Money is spilling over, people are pouring in and out. Fantastic. There's nothing to complain about, even though we may try. But what about when times are hard? Isn't that where your metal is actually tested? How do we know if Joab and Abishai actually believe and trust in the covenant love of God? How do we know? Isn't it when they're surrounded by the armies in front and behind? How do you know, Christian, whether you actually trust in God's plan for your life unless you get the report that says you've got cancer? How do you know? Well, when times are good, it's easy to say, of course I trust. But how do you really know? Well, when it all turns south, then you find out. Who or what are you really trusting in? Are you like the, the Ammonites and the Syrians who at the slightest sign of battle are going to flee? Run? Or is it at that moment when you hit your knees and say, I don't know what you're doing and I may never understand it, but I trust you. Are those the kind of people that we are? Are those the kinds of Christians that God is making us to be? Is that the kind of church that he is shaping here at EBC? Well, then how do you know unless you go through adversity? How do you know unless it's tested? See, there's a, a blessing and a warning in that passage in Psalm 2. The passage ends like this, to put very simply the same point that's being made in our passage. Those who foolishly spurn the kindness of God will face His wrath, and the message is repent of your sin and serve Him as Lord. Psalm 2, verse 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, for its enduring testimony to us. It's never found wanting. You reaffirm to us time and again its truthfulness. You reaffirm time and again your faithfulness to us. In spite of our doubts, in spite of our fears, in spite of our longings or our misgivings, in spite of our lack of trust, in spite of our fickleness of heart, you are faithful to your covenant. When we are faithless, you continue to be faithful. Your loving kindness endures forever. We are grateful for that. I pray only that we can trust it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, 
we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.